0: ESPN is popping. You see the ticker. They said, Shaquille O'Neal coming to Miami. I said, we about to win a chip. (laughs) And and, then the person that's getting the luggage is like, yo, man, I'm sorry, man. You was on your way, but good luck in L.A. And I was like, oh, I got traded.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Needing Dill, the podcast, presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins. But you can call me Hawk. I'm a former NFL wide receiver, Columbia Business School grad and director of business development at Uninterrupted. If you're a listener of the show, you already knew that. You're also probably familiar with what the podcast is about, the extended version of the Kneading Dough video series where superstar athletes discuss life-changing amounts of money. But on this episode, we're switching it up a little with a special episode of the Kneading Dough podcast series, a mini-series called Branching Out, hosted by myself. On Branching Out, we're sitting down with athletes who have moved on from their sports careers to go on to even more success in all sorts of business ventures. They're creating new paths and surpassing expectations for what athletes can and can't do after their playing career is over. And through these live tapings that take place in Chase Branches, Branching Out serves to engage local communities and advance black pathways all over the country. Before we get started with this conversation featuring former NBA All Star Karam Butler, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Yes, it's free. And yes, I'd like you to give the show a five star rating. And more importantly, tell a friend. Deal? Deal. This
0: mic like like this didn't happen
1: yet. Yeah, I got you, don't see us. All right. And now. I am pleased to welcome Karan Butler to this episode of Branching Out. If you know anything about basketball, then you already know Quran Tough Juice Butler. He was a two-time NBA All-Star, and as a member of the Dallas Mavericks in 2011, he won an NBA title. And since his time in the NBA, he's become a successful investor, a Burger King franchise owner, and he's put more than his fair share back into his hometown community of Racine, Wisconsin. But due to his troubled childhood, Karan almost didn't make it out of Racine. Playing in the NBA? (laughs) That was a very distant dream. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Karan Butler in front of a live audience at McPherson Square Chase Branch in Washington, D.C. Karan, thank you for joining us, man. Seriously, I couldn't think of a better guest to have on this podcast to start off and really launch it. So I appreciate you being here number 1. Yep. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, let's start early on. You grew up in Racine, Wisconsin. Yeah. Can you give us a little glimpse into what that environment was like?
0: I know a lot of people when you hear Racine, Wisconsin, initially you like is it black people there, right? <laughs> it's like it's a real question. And um the environment was extremely crazy because you know I grew up on the south side of Racine and It's right in between Milwaukee and Chicago. So this is at a time where WIC and food stamps and that thing, people was double dipping into that space. So if you take I-94, it's kind of uh, the equivalent of going from here to Virginia, where you can get two checks. And you you know what I mean? So you diving into Mm -hmm. that, so that was the hustle. But we also was the hub for violence because you had unfamiliar people in that space. So you had the GDs, you had the Lords, you had the Latin Kings, you had, everybody was hip to the game, but they wasn't hip to what location to stay at.
1: So you had gang violence, you had obviously the drug trade. So I would imagine that the family you grew up with was very much a part of that lifestyle. Yeah,
0: you know, my uncles, you know, the male figures that I had in my life, my two uncles, uh, my five aunties, you know, I had one that used to jump on me all the time. Uh, they used to try to, you know, be extremely hands on with me but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't receiving the message and my uncles was always incarcerated in and out the penitentiary, Mm. uh, you know, battling child support issues and things like that and I saw them as, you know, something I wanted to be like and, you know, that was just my visual of what a man should be, Mm. you know, back then. And I think that was the beginning of my trauma.
1: So I mean that makes sense, I, and I always say that like because whether we like it or not we're products of our environment mm. and I don't care if you grew up in Racine or you grew up in Beverly Hills like for me my older brother played football and I had a couple I had a lot of older brothers that went to both directions uh, similar to to your family but the brother I looked up to the most played football and I always tell people had he decided to be a truck driver I probably would have been a truck driver it just so happened he was a ball player and like you said we are kind of a product of the people we grow up around and we look up to.
0: When you talk about what you imitate or what you want to be like, I mean, that's just what I saw. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I, I don't want to blame it on that, but you know that was a heavy influence on what ended up happening to me going forward.
1: So let's talk about that. What, what ended up happening to you going forward? You started selling drugs at an early age?
0: I was intrigued and fascinated you know, by the things that you seen, you know, whether it was the Cadillac uh-huh. with the rims on it, whether it was the jewelry, whether it was, you know, having multiple women surrounding you because, you know, I, I wasn't on the cute side and nothing like that. So <laughs> I, I knew I needed to have to make some money to, you know, that be the carrot to draw people in. And I wanted that type of attention, you know what attention. I mean? So I started hustling, you know, um, at the age of pretty much about 11, 12 years old, I was doing runs.
1: That's very different than a paper route. I was a paper boy, and I can attest that there was no money in that. If the time wasn't worth the money. I would make 100 bucks after a month of work getting up every day at 4 a.m.
0: 1,200 houses.
1: 1,200 houses <laughs> getting chased by skunks. So, okay, so you're 11 years old, and it seems like by the time you're already knee-deep into this lifestyle, you're not even old enough to even understand the gravity of things you're putting yourself in the way of.
0: Yeah, look, I didn't understand what I was doing, but I knew I was making bread.
1: Mm. So the money aspect of it is kind of what drove you to the, the street life at that time. It
0: was the reason why I was out there.
1: You were a young man. You were, at that time, probably the man of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when you had your first kid? I was 13 and a half when I had my first child. So you are living, a gro- you have grown man responsibilities at a young age and the money aspect so so many of us get our first lessons about money from our family Mm -hmm. right so for me I had a grandfather who was in my life and since I was really really young he would always tell me a penny save is a penny earn he would end every conversation that way so as I got older I found myself hoarding money I would never spend it like even as a kid and I still have some of those same tendencies now my wife hates it but there's good and bad to it so for you do you remember like a certain lesson you learned from your family about money early on?
0: Yeah, I mean, my, my family come from the south, Columbus, Mississippi, and you know, my grandmother right now to this day still probably got Buffalo nickels under her mattress. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she, she was a saver, she was a earner. She is a provider, you know, for, you know, my aunts and uncles, seven of them, and you know, multiple of us, you know, over 25 grandchildren, and you know, what I seen was her balance, but I also seen her try to save every situation. And Uh. she almost kind of crippled, you know, the men in the family because they never caught on to the importance of being earners Mm -hmm. and learning how to bump your your head and bounce back and respond from adversity and things like that. So um, I learned the value of money through her because she was able to manage those things, still own property in the South, and be able to take care of the whole landscape of
1: the family. Okay, so as you know, this series is called Branching Out. Part of why we call it that is because these athletes have gone on to do extraordinary, unexpected things after their sports career. But what all these people have in common is they had really defining moments in their lives, with just one thing going differently, could have changed everything for Quran, that defining branching out moment came at just 15 years old right and you talk about getting rid of like not being able to see the benefits of consequence so at this time you are very much still a kid you were very much deep into the the hustling life you've been arrested 14 to 15 times by the time you're 15 Mm-hmm. But things changed for you, your last arrest, your long stretch behind bars. What happened there? Well,
0: the, the thing that changed for me, and this is when I'm talking about the time that I had the encounter with, you know, Rick Geller. You know, what usually happened with African-American males or any color, once you are in a drug-infested neighborhood and the ATF raid your house... If they find anything in your house, paraphernalia, uh, crumbs that look like sugar, Mm. sugar that look like flour, flour that look like whatever. If it looked like it, it is that you're going to jail. I was on papers and Rick Geller had gave me the benefit of the doubt. They found the ounce of hard crack cocaine in a garage on our property, and Rick Geller had to make the executive call in that situation. And I was already handcuffed. I was already, like I said, on probation, and Rick Geller just said, I don't believe it's yours. He said, I've been doing surveillance on this area, and not once have I heard about you out here or been informed by an informant
1: that you've been hustling. And that could have changed your life completely. 10 to 15 years I was facing. 10 to 15. So what was it that you think that the cop seen in you that A, confirmed your innocence, or B, changed his mind or the people around him about who you were? I'm going to tell you what he said, but I still don't
0: understand this shit to this day. Yeah. Like, I'm just, I'm being honest because it just don't happen like that. Uh Uh-huh. You know what I mean? But he came in there and... He said, I noticed uh, burn marks on your hands, which it was visible, because mm. I was working at Burger King at the time. I was in the boiler steamer, so I used to always get burned. I was like, damn, shit, burgers, hot. You know what I mean? People complain about being a drive through for three minutes, you <laughs> know? Burning myself trying to make sure your product come out right. <laughs> but uh, that's, what, that's what he's seen. And then he also seen the fear of me me just being in that space. Cause he kept looking at me before he had the mask on and they all masked up, still tearing up the house. They already had what they had. And he just kept looking at me. And I was, you know, I'm gonna be real. I was like trying to look sad as hell. Like I was, I was just like, damn. He was just, just like, man, I don't think it's yours. I was like, it ain't, it ain't. Yeah. And he just, uh, Took the handcuffs off of me and let me go.
1: So you were facing a, if if you would have been arrested that day, you would have served 10 to 15 years in prison. 10 to 15. There's another time that you talked about that you were in jail for a long stretch. How long were you locked away then? Uh,
0: 18 months.
1: Now you talked about being in 23-hour lockdown. You're what, 15? Yeah, 15. Years old? So, I mean, I feel like a lot of us can't even fathom being gone in a space for that long, for that amount of time, but it's just, you and your thoughts. So for as much as you feel comfortable doing, like explain to us kind of what that feels like.
0: Well, you know, they say being alone make you strong and also being alone can also break you. And I think I was a combination of both. I thought, I was like, first of all, what the hell I'm doing here, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then I, I thought about the strong women in my family You know, starting off with my mother, working two jobs, doing everything possible for me to succeed in life. And then I thought about, you know, my grandmother and the sacrifices that she made. And then I also thought about the circle of dudes that I played in the sandbox with, kicked it with, you know what I mean? And they no longer here, you know, because they lost their lives to the streets while I was incarcerated. And I had to do some self-evaluation. Now this is at 15, like this is a tough call because right now I'll tell you, I'll fast forward to where I'm at now where I work with the Vero Institute and we we address issues of mass incarceration worldwide. And we talk about nonviolent criminals. And the one thing that you realize when you visit these correctional facilities till this day people never address their trauma, right? So this is me, at 15, understanding that I had to address this. Mm-hmm. I was blaming everybody like, damn, my mom's, you know what I'm saying, she got this bullshit job, ain't making no money. I blamed it on that situation. And I blamed it on, you know, the uh, education hit crazy, you know, like, you know, and then I blamed it on the white man. I was like, yo, white people don't wanna see us make it. You know, mm-hmm. I did, I took it I took it everywhere, but not here. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Like I was just, and once I did that, it changed everything. Like my energy was different. Like I just knew that. They always tell you when you leave the penitentiary or you leave somewhere you don't ever want to go again, don't look back. Mm-hmm. I look back at that shit like three, four times. Yeah, I said, I ain't never going back to that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's that my mind was right, and I was fixed, you know, internally. Mm-hmm. I was fixed before I left.
1: Well, this is the part that actually gives me chills when I heard about it is that so here you are, you, you're sitting in, you're doing an 18 month stint in uh juvenile detention center, and at a, at a point in your life where it seems like this is the absolute low, it's the worst time. Of your life with no vision on what the future holds. Here you are, you actually discover a love for the thing that's gonna define your life and again, change you and everybody in your circle's life. And that's the game of basketball.
0: Yeah. I, I was playing for Canteen for those who don't know what canteen is. That's the the sugars, the the little Debbie cakes, the you know, whatever, the the soda pops and all that. And
1: so you guys would play for snacks? Yeah,
0: oh yeah, a lot of snacks. It was like your life was on the How line. How tall are you at this time? Probably the same height I am now. I just, I just <laughs> you know, grew into my body. All as the snacks, you snacks, yeah. You know, so I was just, I was hooping, and the thing about it is that you can see the merchandise when you're out there playing. So they, they would bring the canteen orders. So they'd be like, man, we got, they got eight cases on this game, eight cases of Coke, Coca Cola. You know what I'm saying? So you're like, man, I got eight cases right there. Then then, you know, phone cards was popular back then. So you have, you know, man, I got 190 minutes of conversation right there. Days by like, man, I got a 90 minute phone card on this game. So it was just, that's what we was playing for. And that's how I developed my passion for basketball.
1: So again, it's just, that's amazing to me that, and it's a lesson that, you know, when things happen, when you feel like you're at your lowest and you seem like the poster child for that, that, being able to spin that positive and being able to draw something out of it to work for the better of your life. Okay, so you leave there, um, you finish high school, not in Racine, you end up in Maine. How did that come about?
0: Because I got caught with uh, drugs, a gun, and school zone and all that stuff, I got banned out of my state. I couldn't participate in um, the education space in the state of Wisconsin. So when I got out, you know, we went to the school board and you know, tried to figure out a way to get in, but you know, at the age of 15 and a half, 16, they banned me from the state. So my mom was like, you know, what the hell are you gonna do? Like, Where can he go to school at? So they said, ah, we got an idea. They brought these, uh, these packets. And it was like from the floor to about right here. They said, this your English, this your math, this your science. And if you pass that, we're going to bring your stuff for the next quarter. Mm. That was my education. And I was like, that shit ain't going to (laughs) work. We can't pay for a tutor. We can't pay for anything. So the guy at the Bray Center, a community center, Jamil Aguari, he said Nike has a a basketball traveling team, and I'm going to reclass you. I didn't know what that was. I was like, reclass me? Like, what's that? He's like, man, look, you just going to play basketball. Don't tell nobody you real age. <laughs> Don't tell nobody you you're 30. <laughs> so I was like, how old am I? He's like, man, say you're 15. You're you going to be 15 on this trip. So I got on the plane, first time flying. I'm sweating. Uh, and we go to Indiana, and I'm playing against the short list of some of the best athletes on the planet. I'm talking about Eddie Curry. Uh, Darius Miles, all top 10 picks in the draft. And I went out there and I won the MVP. So when that happened, they were like, we got something. And he was like, I'm gonna get you in the school. That's how I got out of Wisconsin and went to prep school.
1: Got it. So so for like me personally in football, there was an aha moment for me where, you know, my whole life I, I loved actually basketball. And so there was a time when I was a junior in high school. I'm like five, same height I am now, about five seven. <laughs> the same thing. And I had yeah, in the world. yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm working literally day in and day out, like on my, on my basketball game. I'm, like, I'm gonna go to the NBA. It's gonna be lit. So I went to a football camp without putting any effort into football whatsoever. I go to this camp, and I against top competition. I ball out, and that was like an aha moment for me. That ah, you idiot, you're doing the wrong thing. This is what you should be doing. So from then on, I became a football player. Was that that moment for you or was it a different time where you thought to yourself like, man, I could actually take this, pre- this basketball thing pretty far? So it's,
0: it's crazy because I've been wired to always think that I'm the best. So like, if I'm in class, I'm the best clown in class. If I'm, you know, in the streets and I was hustling at the time, I'm the best hustler. That's just the chip that you mm-hmm. have on your shoulders. So when I went to that tournament, I felt like I was the best player. Now, mind you, these dudes are already slotted as the guys to be the draft picks, one-and-done guys. So my mind, when I came out of there, when you talk about that aha moment, I was like, if they top five and they say they're going to make all these millions of dollars, like, and I just killed them. (laughs) I was like, I was like, and it wasn't even like, you know what I mean? Like right. it, was just, it was no sweat. It was just like, huh, you want this work? You get it. <laughs> and I just <laughs> like you felt- you plan for Canteen again. Yeah, like, they was like, dude, we got, we're got gonna take y'all to Hooters afterwards. We're gonna feed you good. You just gotta bust all them up. I was like, bet. <laughs> that was my mindset, you know what I'm saying? So after that happened, I was like, I'm a pro. I just felt mm. that in my head, and like, I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this other part because I had so much to catch up on academically. Mm-hmm. But from just a pure basketball standpoint, I was like, it's it's going to happen.
1: Mm. So you're from Racine. You leave Racine. You now are going to school in Maine. Yeah. From the environment you described and what I think of when I think of Maine, <laughs> they do not sound like they coincide at all. So what was... What was your learnings when you had to basically adapt to a brand new environment? That is crazy, man. It's it's Cheers. Everybody
0: know your name in Maine. <laughs> like it's a small community, one stoplight. Right now, they got one theater. It's probably playing um, Friday. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far behind it is, you know what I mean? But like, I got with a host family and my my first experience of sitting down with a family and just chilling, like, and just talking about, hey, how was your school? How was your day? You know that shit was weird. Like it was just, like for real, it was just. I mean, I just never experienced that. You know, vacations, like going with them places, and they like, yo, just go to our other house, the lake house. I like, y'all got two houses. <laughs> like shit, like that. That it was just. But then I start learning about, you know, legacy and things like that where, you know, Miss McKay was so kind to me where she was talking about, you know, I wanna leave this for Mag and I wanna leave this for Kate and I wanna leave this. Like she's thinking about them at the age of 15, 16, 17 and college and, you know, uh, FASA and you know, just putting me up on game where I was just like, you know, in our culture, you know, now it's different because we're so connected and information is at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. So we talk about, you know, legacy. It's all about legacy and, you know, uh, preserving our, uh, you know, our ancestors' hard work and, you know, everything that our culture been through. But before it wasn't like that, you know what I mean? So it it exposed me to something different, and it tapped into something. And, you know, it, it, it trained me to think differently.
1: Was there something that you can remember, like, pulling during your experience there that you would carry with you as you left? I
0: think just you know the the family, the family like continuity thing where you're talking mm-hmm. about that being consistent, right? So like I'm always on the road and I'm traveling, but we always go on a, a vacation of some sort like every quarter, right. you know, me and my family. I'm I'm a father of five, four girls, one son. Uh, my oldest in college, you know, and you know we always map out something where we're away. And we're spending time with each other, and we're seeing the world, and and we're exposing them to pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, taking them to you know situations like this, which is like a gym where you know my daughter would have loved to be at, but this is the type of things that I would take her to. Right. You know, to see someone give a wealth of knowledge or mm-hmm. share their experiences, and you know, teach them you know how things go in vertical order, where they can learn to be a better
1: version of themselves. Yep. So. All right, let's fast forward. Now you become the basketball star that everyone talks about, and you get to Yukon, become a star there as well. Within two years, you get drafted 10th overall to the Miami Heat. But you felt slighted by that. In football, it's like teams will promise guys or tell guys, hey, we're gonna draft you number five. Number five rolls around, you don't get drafted. Is that was it a similar case for you? That that wasn't the reason. The the
0: reason why I didn't get drafted, right? Uh, as high as I should've went. I got drafted 10. I still was a lottery pick. But mm-hmm. the reason why I slid is because uh, my record and my background. So you have to understand this. Like, so when you're in this draft draft situation or the war room you, and you have this billionaire owner, right? And they go in the war room and you have the general manager, the vice president, all these guys. And they're like, okay, lay it out. Who's the the biggest return on our investment? Who's the guy that got the biggest upside, the no ceilings guy? And it's like, okay, him, all right. What are the pros, what are the cons? Just like if you invest in real estate. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're like, well, he's the best player, but if we give him a million dollars, I don't know what's gonna happen.
1: Right, 15 arrests.
0: Yeah, they like, he got a lot of baggage all that, they like, oh shit, okay, who's the (laughs) next, you know what I'm saying, like immediately, that's the mindset until some of the owners had sat down with me like and asked me questions mm-hmm. and got got to know me. And um I had I had one guy, Jerry West, I thought that it was a done deal. He told me don't go nowhere else. We're taking you at four. So I was like I can't trust him. <laughs> so I still went other places and um the place I ended up landing at was the Miami Heat. And I think Pat Riley, the godfather of the game, I think he took that chance on me just because, you know, no, no offense to no one else, but I just think that he dealt with a lot of African-Americans mm-hmm. that had trouble past mm-hmm. before.
1: So, you get drafted. What was your guaranteed money?
0: Uh, I was at, You was, when to put it out there. Put huh? it out there, man. So I was like at five, seven.
1: Mm. Five point seven million dollars. So you're an instant millionaire, mm-hmm. um, and I think this is where you kind of start to separate because the athletes I've been around and I dealt with it a little bit myself. When you get there and you get that kind of money, you start to feeling mm-hmm. like this ain't never going to run out. So you they get the ball and they get to buying cars, houses, every hooking the whole family up. What was your mindset when you knew that you just made yourself five point seven million dollars richer?
0: So the the first thing I did. Um, I told you I was from the south and a lot of a lot of our family members in the past, you know they got buried down there. Mm-hmm. They didn't have tombstones, they didn't have stuff like that. So anyone with our DNA, you know, I went and put a tombstone.
1: Mm.
0: That so was that was first your first
1: thing. purchase you made. Dang, man, you were a saint.
0: Yeah, I ain't a saint, but <laughs> <laughs> that was something that you I love had to that, do. Man. Yeah. Dang.
1: So when you had this like are are you very conscious about the money you have or?
0: Of course, just because they, they teach you to treat, to treat every contract as your last. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I always thought like that because one, I, I'm not supposed to be here one. Right. You know, so I just had that mindset. I was like, okay, I gotta give my mother a house. Okay. I do want a car. I get a Cadillac. Okay, that's cool. And then I was just like, I'm not going to touch my my contract money, you know, and I had a great agent and he had put me in a situation where I was getting, you know, endorsement deals. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, getting tops and flair and stuff like that. And I put myself, you know, I self-checked myself, put myself on the allowance immediately where I wasn't spending that money, you know, just in case something happened.
1: So no one in the locker room, like being around the big spenders never influenced you or changed, like you didn't go through your period of being like.
0: Oh, it's crazy, but it it never really happened because I I was simple, like I just wanted a Cadillac. (laughs) Like, I I mean, I was a simple dude. I was like, man, I just want a Cadillac. I'm a Midwest dude. I want to to make sure I got my jeans, heavy starch. (laughs) With the crease down the middle. Oh, yeah, man. man. With the crease down the middle with the Reebok <laughs> Classics. That's all I wanted. you go. Know, I was just chill, man. I was wearing a 10X. A 10X
1: t-shirt. Mm. Now, we'll get to the trade that forced Karan to start thinking about basketball as a business in just a second. But first, all right, let's get back to my conversation with Karan Butler. All right, so early, really early <laughs> on in your career, you learn about the business side of basketball. Yeah. You get traded away from Miami in a blockbuster trade that brings Shaq down to the 305. What what is your thought process at this time? Oh man, I was so mad. So you didn't see it coming at all?
0: Nah. Everybody's seen it but me. I was in denial. <laughs> because, you know, Pat Riley, like I told you, I told you the story, of Pat Riley. He took a chance on me, right? And then, uh, I, I called him. Like this is crazy. I got. I ain't never told the story. So I called him, and I said, um, "Riles." That's what I call him. Riles. Mm-hmm. You know, you, uh, you they saying I'm Sha- Shaquille O'Neal coming to Miami? He's like, "Yeah, that's what they said, huh?" I was like, "Yeah. <laughs> what? 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 Like, what should I do? Because I'm about to buy this house." He said, "Well, it'll be an investment." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, that that didn't give me no comfort, but I still did it." And I go, this is when Basketball Without Borders first started. So after that conversation, literally 48 hours later, I go on this trip to Antigua, and we do a basketball camp. Mm-hmm. And we're there for eight days. And then when I come back, ESPN is popping. You see the ticker. They said, Shaquille O'Neal coming to Miami. I said, we about to win a chip.
1: You <laughs> was right. And it
0: was like, uh, Brian Grant... And he couldn't see the rest of the names. And I was just like, and they were like, dang. And then and, and, and the person that's uh, getting the luggage was like, yo, man, I'm sorry, man. You was on your way, but good luck in L.A. And I was like, oh, I got traded. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I found out I got traded. So in the airport the
1: after the Miami Heat
0: oh, wow. basketball without borders trip.
1: Wow. So what goes into like the financial side of that? Like where are you are you like feeling uncertain about your basketball career? Are you just still thinking I'm the best no, as you're on your plane to Los Angeles?
0: I'm tripping because I don't know what to think. Um, I don't know if that's just I'm just like, this it's gotta be a bad joke. And then until I get to Los Angeles and um a couple things happen. The press conference where I'm like, Okay, I'm gonna be okay out here in Los Angeles because they told me that. Same thing Pat Riley told me, uh-huh. that you're part of the future, we love you. <laughs> no, you said that line. All, yeah, all that. I'm going to use it on somebody what that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're part of the future going forward, we love you. And then, not just that, but this is where my financial, like, radars just went all the way off, where Kobe, the same press conference, they bring his contract out. And he signed $130 million dollars in front of me, so I'm looking at the contract and I'm like, like it's so much more.
1: <laughs> than the 5.7 you playing for. Yeah, because
0: my mind was just like, yo, I made it to the league. But then it was like, oh, you can have longevity in this space. Yeah. So I was just, I was just thinking like that, but to make that, that parallel with what we was just talking about was Miami is so different than Los Angeles because of tax purposes. And then when I went to Los Angeles, the first thing that we realized, me and my fiance at the time, which uh she was pregnant, um, we're we're trying to find locations. So we mm-hmm. we're like, yo, we want to stay on the water, like that's dope. And then we go and get the on the water prices, and you like we're gonna stay like as far <laughs> away from the water as possible. <laughs> and then <laughs> so we was taking, you know, our commute to get to practice because I was just like, I'm not spending that type of money. And the space was really small, so that's what we did. We found something that was reasonable. Uh, we moved to Manhattan Beach. Uh, we we rented out a location because I still wanted to stay within the budget, and like I said, I still was living the same way. Yeah, nothing changed financially.
1: But I mean, that's again, that's that should have been foreshadowing of like the success that you were going to see because you had the the presence of mind to think that way. I've seen so many athletes go to those <laughs> same houses on the water, see those same prices, understand that they can't afford it. And just and, do it. Hey, where do I sign? Right? And it always ends up as bad as you think it does. But for you, a guy that even a young player in the league, to think to yourself, like, man, this isn't smart for my future, that built the foundation for, for what you're doing now.
0: Yeah, it was still different. Like, I I promise you. And I don't live this way now, obviously, and because I position myself to be okay, you know, and my kids also. But it's just like then – I was noodles in the cup. I was, you know, little quarter juices. I f- stocked my refrigerator up. I, like, I was just mindful of my spending habits. Right. I, I didn't go out. I didn't do those things. Like, I was just, I was chill. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be on the scene, you know. And
1: All yeah. smart decisions. I was trying to
0: preserve myself as much as possible.
1: All right, so from there, you get traded again. You end up in Washington. Yeah. Now, Now you become the star that you've been waiting to in the NBA. You become an all-star. You are a household name. You kind of helped build the foundation here in Washington. And then they have a fire sale, which they send everybody off again. And here you are bouncing around. And this is after quite a, quite a while in the league, but nonetheless, you know, time is going by. Was, at, was it at this moment that you started thinking about your transition away from basketball? I never thought that I'd get traded
0: from Washington. And once once I got that, that lucrative deal where you know I signed a little under fifty million dollars, we had set up shop in Virginia, and I'm like, okay, cool, I'm I'm here, like I know I'm here, mm-hmm. and that's when I start like kind of going out a little bit, you know, um, back in like two thousand six seven, I start being on the scene a little more because I like I, I've saved so much. And they was just like, all right, you got you know, once you get like 15 million put up, should never have to work again. You live off your interest, you IRA, you, right, you're 401k. k. Like, all right, cool, cool, cool. So that's the number, 15. I gotta get to 15. Uh-huh. And once I got to that number, that's when I started like, okay, I can live a little bit, I can right. have fun, I can enjoy the city. And it wasn't until I got the phone call when they, what you touched on, when they did the fire sale, um, Miss Poland had called and she had said, and I told a story last night on television. Antoine, <laughs> you uh you guys get recycled all the time and it's been a trade. You out of here. I was like, well, this Quran. <laughs> First of all. And I was like, I was like, thank you for letting me know and thanks for the opportunity. And I immediately hung up with her and I called Antoine. I said, Antoine, you got traded too. <laughs> and that was that was it. But that taught me a lot about business because we really set up like a foundation here. We bought a, a yeah. big house. We was expecting to be here. Uh, we started like, venturing off, doing the little things here. Mm-hmm. And uh, my whole family moved out here, got jobs. And then, um, you know.
1: So, at, when you imagined your life post-basketball, was there a certain <laughs> person you would look to or a role model, someone that you would model what you wanted that to look like? Uh, it was a few guys, uh, Junior
0: Bridgman, uh magic johnson, um one of my neighbors now, um Percy Miller, Master P, mm. um Russell Simmons. This, you know, a lot of guys that made the seamless transition from athlete to business mm-hmm. and or entertainer to business or whatever the case may be. Mark Wahlberg. who's you know, a partner of mine in this project we're working on but you know it was guys like that where i reached out to and just said like help me in this space so i can be great in this space what do i need to know what what are the do's and don'ts right you know in this area and you know i had guys that was willing to give me information all i had to do was you know fight a little traffic to get to it
1: yeah at what point like for me when, when we talk about retirement there was two two ways that I knew it was time to retire. Number one was obviously being a smaller guy; like I was not scared of anybody. Any, I don't care how big you are, I wanted all to smoke, right? So I I would stand up to literally anybody. As I got older in my career, I started second guessing going across the middle on Ray <laughs> Lewis. I'm like, eh, I don't know if I really want to. I don't know if this is worth it. We're the Browns. We ain't winning very very many games. So I knew that was like one indication. The second indication was. I started feeling like football was getting in the way of other things that I wanted to do or new challenges I wanted to face. And you can't be one foot in, one foot out in the game of football. So I knew it was time to hang them up. For you, when did you know it was time to move on from basketball?
0: So two things happen. And you know, when you have a good image and your problems never outweigh your talent, your balance, you can stick around forever in the NBA. It's always a place for you, right? at the end and end of the bench, like all the way down there. When I knew I was done um, from a physical standpoint was when we talked about checking myself in the trauma and looking at myself, I was in Sacramento and I'll never forget It's training camp, you know, guys go through the walkthroughs, make your shots, you know, like, I'm still wet, I got it, you know what I mean? It did. They're like, hey, we live, they like, Dudes went back like boom, boom, and I was just like, It was just, it was so fast. The pace, it was quick. It was like, I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) it was just different, bro. And I was just like, I had to be honest with myself. I was like, I can't, I can't, I can fake it, but I can't do this. I
1: can't move that fast. No,
0: I can't do this no more. Like, it was just that quick. And it happened over a summer. It was just like, I lost like eight steps in in one summer. (laughs) <laughs> and and we I just no knew. Working out, I just knew it wasn't happening no more.
1: So how did you set yourself up financially, like to get ready to say, okay, I'm stepping away from the game of basketball. Financially, these are the things I need to have in place. What were they?
0: Well, I had a two year deal already that was signed, so I knew I had guaranteed income. Mm,
1: that's that's the luxury in basketball that we don't have in football.
0: Yeah, it was guaranteed. So I had a three million dollar cushion where I knew that was coming in cash flow off just that space. Mm. And then you look at you know the money that we already put up. You know it was. Uh, a high number, and you know, that alone, we was okay with just living off the interest of that for pretty much ever, all of us. And then I looked at, like, what do I wanna do next? Because now, this gonna be a two year space where I'm I'm like saying, I'm I'm doing the down south goodbye. It's like, okay now, see you later basketball. Okay, that whole Mm -hmm. process for two years, and like, what do I wanna do next? Like, what's my niche? And I love talking basketball. I love creating content. I love uh, being the wallpaper on shows and things like that. So I said, okay, I'm gonna parlay that into, you know, being a play-by-play guy or Mm -hmm. in studio. And I started doing that. I started doing the Draft Combine. I started with college because that's a space where, you know, your name alone, you know, as a former NBA player, you can dive into that space and be a, a giant. And then I showed my value in that space and it created space with Turner and Fox and all these other networks. And then I started getting my reps in um, with with radio. Like I would do spots for like bare minimum. Like they are like, you don't do it at this rate? I was like, yeah, I need the reps. Like I, yeah. need, I need to get some reps. And you know, I, I did that, you know. Um, and I I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But because I, I didn't burn any bridges on any city out of the eight teams that I played for in the association, the second that my name hit the wire where it was like he's retired, I had I had options. Yeah. From every organization. I'm talking about it's not one organization that didn't call me. You know what I mean? Like even this platform went uninterrupted, like it's it was a blessing, you know, because we done work with each other for multiple years. But you know, I'm talking about the Miami Heat, the Wizards, like, hey man, you want this job? It's a great opportunity. And, you know, it's like, you know, six, almost seven-figure jobs, you know, just there for you all because you did the right things and you left a good taste in people's mouth when
1: you left that situation. That's amazing. So tell me this. When you – for me, leaving out of football, there were certain things that I had to get used to in the business world. For instance, in the locker room. When you have a problem with somebody, you don't sugarcoat it. You walk up to them. You're very transparent. You're blunt. I have a problem with you. If that escalates to the next stage, so be it. We're in a safe environment where we could do that. You can't do that in the business. World. No way. So what are some things you had to unlearn as you transitioned from the court to the boardroom? Well, I, I tell you this, like
0: a lot of things are trial and error, right? Because we're creatures of habits, which you just touched on, where we're accustomed to taking our naps a certain time. We're accustomed to people catering around us. And, you know, having people, you know, pretty much cater around all our begging needs and everything. But when you're in this world, it's, cer- it's certain qualities that you can take from the sports space. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about being consistent. All right. Cool. Game at 7 o'clock. You know what time you need to be getting prepared and stuff like that. So that's like same thing with the workplace. But you also talk about camaraderie. And you talk about, you know, teamwork and understanding, you know, people – Efficiencies of what they can't do, but also what they can do, and, you know, highlighting them in that space where they're really good at and gradually bringing them along in the areas where they need to work at. So, you know, I I learned a lot of that being on the end of the bench. I also learned a lot of that, you know, being in the ownership space and um, being able to, you know, travel with the team my last two seasons and creating relationships, being at these boardroom meetings. Um, learning how to identify conversations where I can just talk about anything, not just basketball or not right. just, you know, that. I could talk about politics, I could talk about this, I could talk about somebody past gas. I'd be like you no know, <laughs> like it, whatever's popping right now, rap or anything, like I could talk about it. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think that you have to be extremely diverse in that space, you know what I mean, to connect the dots.
1: Right. All right, so in your, in your career, obviously, as an athlete, you've experienced amazing wins and tough losses. Financially, is there a loss that you can think back to that was a learning experience for you financially? And then how did you mentally cope with that?
0: I think the hardest thing that I had to deal with was, and it, I don't, I don't want to say it was a loss because it was a bare minimal loss financially, but it was a hell of a lesson where, you know, you try to impact, uh, your family as much as possible. Mm-hmm. People that's not, I always say this, like everybody got ideas, like people are like, man, give me a million dollars, watch see what I do with it, you know? And, right. But you have to be prepared for your blessing. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you know, I wish I would've just did certain things differently. For instance, like one of my first gatherings with my family, I told them, they thought they always getting checks, right? We come, mm-hmm. and like, oh man, he about to hit us off. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Bring me your debt. Like, bring me all your financial debt, and they understand what I meant. I was like, you know, your bills, you know, stuff. So your credit is just like a one. Like, bring me your financial debt. Like, I ain't gonna give you a million dollars, but I'm gonna I'm gonna chunk off a lot of this stuff. The twenties and the seventeens and the just bring that to me.
1: Right. You know what I mean? So yep. I can give
0: you a event like a, a head start. Mm-hmm. You know and. I did that and then when you're talking about business, from a business standpoint, I did some things financially just for them that they wasn't prepared for, you know, because you have to have classes or you have to have like, you know, some financial guidance in that space. You can't just hand them that. It's like giving the kids some kidney in the kidney store. Like they're never gonna stop or they never gonna right. know when to you know back off from it. So that was just the one lesson I learned. And then when I went back to Harvard Business School and I I took case study classes there, I learned a lot of different ways how I could have navigated in that space and helped them.
1: That kind of informed you that to be like, man, I should have probably went about it this way. Yeah,
0: you know, even you know, not even sending them to college, but like from a technical standpoint, if Gateway they have so many programs that exist from a business standpoint, and that's Mm -hmm. right there in the community in the city where it takes 90 days, where they understand money. Right, Because a lot of people don't understand, like, okay, we're first generational riches, mm-hmm. and we want to become wealth, and we want to become, and we want to pass it on, you know, for generations and legacies, but um, people don't know what you don't know. Like, right. you, do, you you got to get educated. Education is everything. That's everything, bro.
1: Yeah. So tell me this. I, knowing that, going through those experiences, what are some of Karam Butler's top rules for business? like? What rules do you abide by yourself after going through everything you've gone through?
0: well, people always say don't be the smartest person you know handling your your vision mm-hmm. and, and and what you're doing and I totally agree with that um, but i'm I'm being educated even in my space to this day i I also you know I'm not a guy that you know that swing at everything that's thrown at me. Mm-hmm. I think as you know as young millionaires, you know everybody's trying to be. You know, which is no knock, you know, he's he's the example. Uh, you know, guys like Jay-Z and guys like that as, you know, billionaires beyond mm-hmm. and, and making financial um, impacts, you know, around the world. But people try to be that just with, you know, take the elevator to that instead right. of taking the stairs and getting on base and learning the business and understanding the business so you know how to navigate and get back to that space, you know what I mean, and bring right. some people with you. So I just – I try to learn the ins and outs of everything, just like the space that I'm in now with production and television. I try to learn everything about it. Mm -hmm. When I was in the real estate space, I try to learn everything about it as much as possible. And, you know, I think that's the thing, you know, try to learn as much as possible about, you know, what you invested in, what, what you have going on and how you can, you know, progress and move forward.
1: Educate yourself. Now you talked about you being in the real estate space when you were, you had some developments in your hometown of Racine, Wisconsin. Speak about the importance of developing business in a place that shaped everything that you are today.
0: It's amazing because we went back and we bought the community center um, that I grew up at. And, you know, a lot of of things happen where resources are taken away from, you know, inner city communities. Mm -hmm. So we try to, you know, not only own the, the community center, but also bring resources back you know, bring things like this back where people are getting inspired by, you know, people that look like them, walk like them, talk like them, and that can give them a wealth of knowledge and information. So I think that's amazing. And um I think it's I think it's paramount that, you know, you own those spaces that you once rented. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like even the landlords in that space, they, they didn't look like me. Right. You know, and yeah. you know, I got a ton of eviction notices on my doors and my mom, you know, looking and this panicking and now we're in a situation where, you know, we're showing by, okay, they own these properties. Now you got the little kids out there saying, like, yo, I want to be a, a landlord. I want to be an owner. I want to, you know, do all these things. Like, the, their imagination are running wild because of they seeing us
1: out there doing that. Because they're seeing examples of people that look like them. No doubt. Come from, from their environment. Now let's talk about legacy. That's a perfect segue. What do you say to the 8-year-old who is in Racine, Wisconsin, who might not see a path for becoming Karan Butler? How do you open his eyes up to that?
0: Man, I, I always say it's no ceilings. And what I mean by that is it's, it's, it's nothing you can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I go back to the, the schools all the time, and I'm, I'm principal for a day, you know, t- in all these communities where I go to the elementary schools and then I go to the high schools and then I do uh, assemblies and I talk to the kids and just tell them that I want them to understand that Some of these principals, some of these faculty members told me that I wasn't going to be absolutely nothing. And when I told them some of my dreams, they just looked at me like, for real? Like, that's what's up. (laughs) Like, you know, but you need to go to case and get ready to learn how to work that machine, Mm -hmm. you know, and be on that assembly line. So I tell the kids, don't be discouraged by somebody that don't see your vision. You know what I mean? And don't don't let someone put their shortcomings on you or their lack of vision on you. Right. And, you know, they see it. You know, they see us pulling up, they see us owning things, and they see that that's a reality and that's a tangible is something that they
1: can accomplish. So tell me this, now, and this is a perfect way to kind of wrap this conversation. What does winning, what is the equivalent of winning a championship look like the Karan Butler on this side of playing basketball?
0: Closing deals. I I I won three championships this week. Uh. I did. 3 rings. Yeah, man. Uh connecting with y'all, closing this situation down, going to Atlanta, closing another one. Like that's that's a great feeling because being able to preserve your mind and your legacy from away from the sports arena and being able to have value. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like like real value, like right. substance value. Um it's 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 a unique thing. You know what I mean, and you can't take it for granted. So, um, it's it. I I can't describe. It. It's a it's a crazy feeling. But man, we got a lot of rings, got a lot of championships, man, and it's, it ships. feel good,
1: man. Feel really good. That's amazing. Look, Karan, we appreciate you joining us here, man. Where can we find you on social media? Uh,
0: at Real Tough Juice, uh, Twitter, and Karan Butler Instagram. Follow me. I'll follow you back.
1: And also the book. Where can we Where can we find the Tough Juice book at?
0: Uh, Amazon dot Barnes and Nobles. And for Everywhere. anybody who
1: don't doesn't know, they're making a movie about Karan Butler, with starring Mark Wahlberg. Or yeah, Mark
0: Wahlberg is the police officer, uh, Sergeant Geller. Uh, he's
1: producing it, and um, can I play Karan Butler? <laughs> Let's just get right to it. This is what this is all about. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll offline about it. Karan, we are. Hey, hold cooking. on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we gotta stop. Hold on, hold on. I
0: gotta get to this. And shout out to YouTube, bro, because you know you just signed over and you're doing something big with your movie and, and, and your life and your life story, and that's amazing. And that's going to be inspiration for not only just the listeners and, you know, you guys, y'all see this in the flesh, and y'all can go back and share these stories, but that's what it's about. You know what I mean? Like, me and my brother was just talking about this in the back where I said, man, where else do you guys do this, and how do you get um, seats in this, this type of engagement? because if I had had access to this, Mm -hmm. like, do you know, like, I would have been so far advanced, like, back then, Mm -hmm. like, if I had access to this, you know, with people that look like me, talk like me, that go through the struggle, if they're exposed to things like this, it could change their life,
1: like, for real. It can really change their lives. That's amazing, Karan. I mean, again, appreciate you. You are the epitome of more than an athlete, what branching out is. And we appreciate you sharing your story here to trying to help change the narrative and hopefully inspire somebody else. Let's give him a sure. round of applause for Ron Butler. Sure. That's gonna do it for this episode of Needing Though the Podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to your shows. It's free, it helps others find the show, and that way, you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again to our partner for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com and see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, TD St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me, a penny saved is a penny earned.